You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Shannon Tiezi, The Diplomats Editor-in-Chief and our resident China hand. Shannon, thanks so much for coming back to the podcast. Always a pleasure, Ankit. Well, Shannon, we have a lot to talk about, and I'm glad we're following up this week because I think the last time we had you on the show was right after China's 19th Party Congress, that event that we... You know, China watchers have spent an entire year speculating about, and then, uh, you know, will Xi Jinping declare himself emperor for life? What will happen? Who will who will go where? Will we, what would the new Politburo leadership look like? And of course, all those questions have been answered. But now on February 25th, Xinhua, in a somewhat terse and almost cryptic announcement, uh, simply pointed out that when the uh, National People's Congress would meet, and that meeting opened today, um, they would moot a revision to the state constitution to remove the term limitations for both the presidency and the vice presidency of the Chinese state. Obviously, that is one of the titles that Xi Jinping hosts, uh, holds, uh, in addition to his entire uh, potpourri of titles, uh, General Secretary of the CCP, Chairman of the Central Military Commission, Commander-in-Chief of the People's Liberation Army, and on and on we go. Uh, but of course, President of the PRC is now another title that she appears poised to retain, um, effectively um, sealing in his leadership in another way. Um, but Shannon, I guess the place to really begin our conversation today is to talk a bit about something that I think you were one of the only China watchers that really pointed out sort of unambiguously, right? I mean, this you know, there's this idea that, you know, they announced this thing in Xinhua, everybody freaks out, and all these Western analysts are saying, you know, this is it, this is Xi Jinping declaring himself emperor for life. But, you know, you go back to the 19th Party Congress, you see the elevation of Xi Jinping thought into the party constitution, you see um, Xi effectively, um, you see the new Politburo Standing Committee, there's no clear successor to Xi Jinping. I mean, the implication is that as long as she is alive, there will be no one above him within the Chinese political apparatus. So can you talk a bit about what you make of this um, of this change? Um, I mean, I already know what you meant, but, you know, uh, because I read your article, but for our listeners, um, I think you had a really interesting um, approach to why Xi Jinping would look to do this and why the party would look to give him this um, additional title beyond his two terms. Sure. Um, so first of all, just to clarify, I, I can't take credit for originating this idea that um, Xi Jinping was already emperor for life. This is something, that exact phrase is something that Willie Lam has said, um, including, I think, in his interview with us right after the party congress. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I, I quoted Bill Bishop, um, the cynicism uh, newsletters uh, provider, and a, an awesome China hand. If, if you guys haven't already subscribed, you should definitely do so. He said, essentially, now that Xi Jinping has his name alongside Mao Zedong's in the party constitution, it does not matter what his official title is. He is emperor for life, essentially. Uh, So the question then is not, you know, that Xi Jinping wanted to be emperor for life. That question has already been answered Um, since the, the party congress, certainly arguably before that, because the developments at the party congress themselves weren't a surprise. The question is why he attached enough importance to the title of president um, that he needed to amend China's constitution so that he would be able to keep it. And as I pointed out in my article, the the presidency is not the source of Xi Jinping's power. And, And this is a point that is very obvious that everyone who is even passingly familiar with China is well aware of, but that wasn't getting 
obviously pointed out in the analysis of she keeping the presidency uh, is this question of does it even really matter if she is, is still the president because his power comes from his role as general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, and uh, chairman of the Central Military Commission. And there's no real firm rule that he would have to step down after two terms in either of those positions. And in fact, that was part of the justification for changing the term limit for the presidency is, well, the CCP general secretary and the CMC chairman positions don't have term limits, so we're just bringing them all in line. Uh, but, you know, Jiang Zemin handed over the presidency to Hu Jintao, but kept the chairmanship of the CMC and was sort of a shadow ruler behind the scenes for you know at least two years, arguably more. And then Deng Xiaoping himself, he was never the president. Um, he was never even the general secretary of the CCP. And no one would argue that he wasn't the most important leader in China uh, for, you know, at least the, the 80s, you know, into the 90s, it's kind of debatable when he was ultimately supplanted by Jiang. Um, so my argument was that the presidency, even though it, it doesn't invade the holder of that title with any power, um, it brings sort of international prestige in a way that matters more now for Xi than it did when Jiang Zemin was willing to step down. There's a lot more international meetings that China's a part of that it's represented by the president, um, that Xi Jinping would not be able to attend if he did step down as president, you know, in, in five years. So yeah, that was my thought on as to why he, he felt so strongly on keeping the presidency that he was willing to make his intentions crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think I think there is a lot to that. I mean, I think in the past year or so, we've seen a little bit more of um, prestige seeking out out of Xi. I mean, I think a good example is, you know, his big speech at Davos. But also, I think, you know, as the Belt and Road Initiative uh, has also now been elevated um, in the in the party um, as as kind of China's go to external grand strategy. It would seem like, you know, that she would want to retain that ability to um appear alongside other other world leaders, other heads of state um, well into the future, um, even as he retains control of the country. And also, you know, I mean, China talks about, um, you know, major country relations all the time. And the two other um, major powers, Russia and the United States, are both going to be led by presidents. Uh, so if she wants to be seen on par uh, with the U.S. president, with, uh, you know, as, as China continues to pursue some kind of G2 arrangement, plausibly, assuming that U.S.-China relations don't fall off a cliff soon, um, that I think having that title will be useful. So I think that foreign affairs angle is quite helpful. Uh, you know, I have to ask you a question about geopolitics, though. I mean, I hear I hear some China watchers talking about uh, a perception within the party that, um, you know, we are now about to enter a particularly difficult or, you know, not difficult, but a sensitive time for China. You know, this idea of China essentially completing its rise and emerging as a great power. I think we see that in the newly released defense budget numbers. Um, and obviously, I think that's a trend that's been going for some time. But do you think that there's something kind of uniquely um, in in the psyche of the party leadership um, and the way that they think about Xi? I mean, and especially, you know, within Xi's faction that um, that leads them to think that having Xi specifically retain the title of president will be uniquely useful in the next, you know, 10 to 15 years as China kind of enters this period of head on um, transition with the United States as a peer power, no longer as a rising um, developing country. 
I think uh, from a perception standpoint, it is important because if you think about the, the things that really define um, China stepping onto the world stage, you're mostly thinking of you know, Xi Jinping's policies and Xi Jinping's slogans. Um, he is the originator of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is really the framework for arguably every single foreign policy move that China makes. Certainly, it's appearing in the official statements made by Chinese leaders on almost any visit. You know, you pick a country around the world. If a Chinese official is speaking there, I give you good odds that they're going to mention the Belt and Road. <laughs> so having Xi Jinping, who is the face of that initiative, continue to be the face of China leads to some continuity that I think is valuable. Uh, but even in a broader sense, kind of the intersection of the domestic and the foreign policy, when Xi Jinping, his other slogan, obviously, is the Chinese dream the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, which is really, it's its a domestic goal, but it's outward focused in a sense, because it's about China taking what is seen as its rightful place on the world stage. So again, I think to have the man who is most closely associated with that praise, continuing to lead China and continuing to be the one to champion achieving that goal, I think is going to be very useful to the party. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, let me get to the question that I think um, has been most polarizing among China watchers, um, which is, is this a sign of strength or weakness? Um, and, you know, we can talk about whose strength or weakness. Obviously, I think it's a little bit less ambiguous when we're talking about Xi Jinping's strength or weakness, but about the Chinese political system as a whole. Um, you know, I think there have been longstanding questions about the sustainability um, of a system like this. And I think um, in the 80s, um, obviously under Deng, uh, with the changes away from personalized dictatorship towards leading by committee, um, that was um, recognized somewhat internally. So what's your, what's your read? I mean, um, is this going to lead to a new era of dangerous, chaotic Maoism in China um, or something like it. I mean, obviously, she is a different political thinker than Mao. He doesn't relish the idea of chaos in itself, necessarily. Um, but, you know, there are legitimate concerns about continuing repression, um, continuing erosion of, um, of, of freedom. I mean, certainly China is not heading in a liberal um, direction of, of reform, as, as many in the West might have imagined um, a few years ago. Um, but what's your, what's your read on what this says about the Chinese system? I think, obviously, Mao Zedong's China and Xi Jinping's China are so completely different that comparing them is a tricky proposition. But if we are going to compare them, I think the danger here is not so much a modern-day cultural revolution as a modern-day great leap forward. Um, because as you said, Xi Jinping doesn't want chaos. He, he wants the opposite of that. He wants stability, and that's the great justification for this move, is stability. We can guarantee that Xi Jinping is going to continue to lead China. The problem is he has been so avid about suppressing dissent in all forms, uh, whether that's coming from you know rival politicians who might be wanting to seize power or academics who are criticizing his policies that you're eventually you're going to reach a place where no one is willing to speak out against him. 
And Xi Jinping has already amassed so much personal control of such a broad portfolio uh, from China's, you know, economic reforms to foreign policy to military affairs. You know, it, it doesn't matter how great of a leader he is. One person cannot be an expert on all of those things, right? He needs input from, you know, policymakers, academic people who have devoted their careers to these fields. And he's not going to get that input, frankly. The atmosphere that he has created is not conducive to people standing up and saying, you know, the way you're going about X policy is probably not going to work in the long term. It's going to cause these complications. Uh, and that's what happened in the Great Leap Forward. Mao Zedong's policies were uh, an unmitigated disaster. Uh, and I think most of the experts would have seen that coming, but they were too afraid to tell him. And the officials implementing the policies and seeing how disastrous they were on the local level were too afraid to admit that they weren't working. And so the situation quickly snowballed out of hand, and that's why you had this gigantic famine. Now, in terms of the scale of what goes wrong, I think we're not going to see anything close to that for the Great Leap Forward. Um, but definitely kind of that as a metaphor for where China's biggest danger point lies, I think, is accurate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think there's a possibility of that potentially playing out in the international security and foreign policy realm with Xi potentially taking a uh, an ill-advised decision to potentially um, escalate a conflict if um, if he perceives either, you know, the the need to placate Chinese nationalists, or he legitimately feels that that is the best course of action without considering advice from all sectors. I mean, um, again, I don't I don't have a specific here, but obviously I think, you know, um, what you pointed at is a commonly cited pitfall of kind of personalist dictatorships, um, something that I think um, at least the second generation of Chinese leadership had uh, had taken some note of after, after the Maoist history. Um, let me ask you, uh, you know, let's... Uh, pivot a little bit towards uh, the the two sessions that are underway uh, for listeners that don't commonly follow China, the two sessions being the meeting of the National People's Congress, um, which is expected to uh, rubber stamp a range of things, including this amendment on term limits, but also elevate Xi Jinping thought in the state constitution, um, um, create a new anti-corruption agency and other things, and also the meeting of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. Um, so, uh, Shannon, um, I wanted to ask you a bit about the other uh, components of Chinese leadership, which matter less these days, but but still matter to an extent. And specifically, uh, uh, you know, Wang Qishan is back on the scene. Um, where where are things standing with him, and, and what do you think um, he's destined for? I think that is one of the most interesting questions to watch as the two sessions unfold. And it'll be closer to the end when we actually see all of these um, the positions announced and, and filled. Before the constitutional amendment was revealed, the thinking was that Wang Qishan would be made um, the vice president. Now, after he stepped down at the end of the party congress, Generally, an official would have gone into retirement, but Wang appeared um, on the delegate list for the National People's Congress, which is a very strong signal he's going to be holding some sort of policy position. And then just today, um, there was a photo that's been making the rounds on social media of Wang Qishan sitting in a row at mm -hmm. the end of the Politburo Standing Committee's, you know, dais. So he's kind of a shadow eighth member of the Politburo Standing Committee in that image. And I think that's a very clear signal 
that even though he officially does not have a role in trying to stop governing body, he's still very influential. Yeah. It's, the it, question now is, is he just going to get the vice presidency or is something even bigger and even more unusual in store for him? <laughs> because she's clearly willing to break norms when he thinks it's in his best interest and in the party's best interest. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, the most interesting thing to watch. Yeah, no, it's a remarkable photograph um, with uh, Xi and Wang essentially bookending the uh, the rest of the Politburo Standing Committee. It's it's quite powerful. And then, of course, when uh, when they're um, making the presentation, you just see Wang kind of not even looking at the report in front of him. He's just kind of staring right ahead. Uh, I think that's also kind of you know I think symbolic of of the of the sway that he carries. Yeah, no, I'll be I'll definitely be interested to see what uh, ends up happening to him. I mean, his fate was one of the big questions that people were mulling in the lead up to the 19th Party Congress. We didn't really get any uh, clear answers about where he's going, but certainly I think there might be something interesting in store for him. Um, but, you know, just uh, zooming out a bit and, um, you know, maybe we'll end with this today uh, and reflecting on the two sessions which are um, which have just gotten started. Um, obviously, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, Xi Jinping and the leadership, um, but obviously, you know, that's not all that's going on in China. Um, the the two sessions, I think, will you know also turn to issues like economics, the environment, um, anti-corruption. Um, what else are you um, are you looking for out of out of these um, out of the two sessions this year? Okay, so I think big picture, the presidential term limit kind of sucked all the oxygen up and was getting all of the attention. But in terms of the constitutional amendment package, um, arguably over the long term, the creation of the National Supervision Commission will be just as influential. Uh, and this is essentially a new state body that is going to be tasked with uh, anti-corruption, right? So we always had the uh, Central Commission on Discipline Inspection, which is a CCP, a party apparatus, that is responsible for disciplining party members. And that was what Wang Qishan was previously the head of. But now we're going to have this brand new um, National Supervision Commission with you know, provincial and local equivalents um, at the various levels of government, just being created out of scratch. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this works, um, to what extent it overlaps with the CCDI um, the, the, the theory right now is that Zhao Leiji, who is the head of the CCDI, will also be tasked with overseeing the new supervision commission. Um, we'll have to wait and see if that's accurate. But if it is, that essentially means for all intents and purposes, they're the same body, although they'll, they're technically separate. It's kind of a merging of the state and party anti-corruption functions. Mm -hmm. um, and this body will have new abilities, broader abilities to uh, bring to bear its its discipline on non-party members, which could have big implications. Um, and something else that I think has been overlooked even more so um, is the new emphasis on the environment. And that's something that you saw in these constitutional packages. There are a couple of little tweaks that put words into the kind of the goal of China's government um, saying that it also wants to promote an ecological civilization. It added the word ecological to this list of um, adjectives that should be used to describe China. Um, and there's rumors that another outcome of the two sessions will be creating this kind of super regulatory body for the environment, uh, something with a bit more teeth than the current Ministry for Environmental Protection, 
that will be able to enforce these regulations. And I think that's an overlooked story, uh, just how seriously the party leadership is starting to take the threats to China's environment. Um, and you know, what exactly are they going to do about it? I think will be very interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think we saw that uh, tension burgeoning during the plenums in the 18th Party Congress. Um, and I think that was backed up by Chinese public opinion, um, citing environmental concerns quite quite highly in their uh, list of kind of grievances and concerns. Um, but Shannon, it, it, you know, it sounds like the bottom line of a lot of this is this kind of merging of the person of Xi Jinping and his kind of surrounding personality cults with the Chinese Communist Party with the state. I mean, all of these entities are starting to blur a bit together and the institutional stovepiping that had kind of kept the persona of the leadership, um, the party apparatus and the state council and the state apparatus a little bit differentiated is now starting to blur. Would you say that's a fair characterization? Yeah, I think if you were going to describe one thing that Xi Jinping is doing in modern China, it is kind of erasing the distinction between the party and, you know, almost everything else of influence in China, right? Like he is, he's taken control away from Li Keqiang, who is, you know, as the premier sort of represents state um, and the state government. And he's centered it in Xi Jinping himself, which represents the party. Um, And that's one thing the National Supervision Commission is going to take away what is nominally a state council function, which is, you know, supervision of uh, government positions. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that we saw in the the constitutional amendments um, is not that there was any doubt that the Chinese system was led by the Communist Party, but they have put a line saying the leadership of the Communist Party of China is the defining feature of socialism with Chinese characteristics uh, into the main body of the Constitution. Previously, the party was only mentioned in the preamble. So they are really making it crystal clear that the state is the party, is the state. And right now, the party is Xi Jinping as the core leader. So yeah, there's definitely this sort of merger of all these things. Um, And I think the danger, which is what a lot of people have been pointing out in terms of what this means for the Chinese system is that opens you up to a lot of problems when it comes to a post Xi Jinping future, because eventually, whether it's factional infighting or just, you know, 40 years from now, natural causes, you won't have Xi Jinping as the head of China anymore. And what happens then? Uh, That's the question. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a great note to end on something for our listeners to think about. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Ankit. For our listeners, if you liked what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. And if you're a subscriber and you haven't yet left us a review on either iTunes or Google Play, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.